Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Welcome to this week's episode of the Great Birth Rebellion. And today we're doing something that might seem a bit obscure and not not everybody's heard of it if you're a woman because you only ever have to think about it if this is you. But we're going to talk about the insertion of the umbilical cord onto the placenta. And I know that sounds just like the tiniest little detail, but we're talking about marginal cord insertions and velamentous cord insertions today. I don't think, you know, it's becoming, and I brought this topic up to be discussed because I reckon I get one or two people a week either send me a DM about it or bring it up in a one-on-one chat because ultrasound is telling people this information. So people have ultrasounds and the sonographer or the report is reporting on these more. And now it feels like it's dictating management specifically of the placenta where when I'm talking marginal cord insertion that's where I'm hearing so that's why we're here so I I actually reckon more people are going to be listening to it well it's more common than you think but it's not concerning to me so even if I saw marginal cord insertion I'd be like okay that's that's a finding thank you very much but it might not necessarily impact on the type of care that I give which is maybe why it's not as dramatic in my eyes yeah but now it's become it seems to be something that's becoming concerning from what the people are telling me because it was never concerning in my practice either and all people being put through with the information we're giving them there's just so much fear it's like there's fear over here there's fear over there there's fear up here there's fear down there where can we give you fear 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 like it's just like do you want it over here do you want it over there we need a Dr. Zeus book. Do you want your fear on a train? Would you like it in the rain? Would you like it on the hospital bed? Would you like it on the football? Would you like it in your 32-week appointment? Would you like it during a scan? Would you like it in? Okay, we're getting Would a bit you... carried away. So let's get into the research. That's, That's what we love. That's what we're here for. All right, so let's talk about marginal and velamentous cord insertion. So the reason I've included velamentous cord insertion is because it's somehow related to marginal cord insertion. So let me give you some definitions to start with. I'm actually going to start with velamentous cord insertion definition. So if you know what a placenta looks like, or if you don't know, go to my social media page and probably B, you've got some pictures of placentas, but you can find them everywhere. Google it. Picture of a placenta, it has a cord that feeds into it, into the placental site, usually somewhere central on the placenta. That's the usual spot. It's sort of on the placental site at the top of it. With a velamentous insertion, the umbilical cord inserts itself into the amniotic membrane, so the sac, rather than the placenta, and the baby's blood vessels stretch along or they grow along the membrane from the cord and they have to traverse the membranes to get to the placenta. So the vessels are fairly unprotected. So when they're in the cord, they're protected by Wharton's jelly. When they're on the placenta, they're kind of implanted into the tissues of the placenta. So 
any vessel that's traveling through the am- through the amniotic sac along the membrane along the membranes is vulnerable. So if you imagine velamentous insertion is quite a distance from the placenta, the blood vessels leave the cord, travel the membrane, and then have to find the placenta. Marginal cord insertion is a similar setup. So the cord is offset from the placenta, although it's only diagnosed as marginal if it's less than two centimetres from the actual placenta. And sometimes a part of the cord is partially inserted in the placenta and partially in the membranes. So it's a kind of baby version of velamentous cord insertion where it's on the margin of the placenta. So if you consider marginal cord insertion on the margin. So there was a very, very big study done in 2013 by Ebbing et al. Again, if you're part of the mailing list, this is in the resource folder, so you can have a read. And it included 635,000 Pregnancy. So over half a million pregnancies were included in this study. And what they found was that abnormal cord insertion, we'll call it abnormal cord insertion, different cord insertion other than centrally, occurred in 7.8% of pregnancies and 1.5% of them were velamentous and 6.3% were marginal. So not uncommon. We might say maybe one in what, 12 or 15 women would have cord insertion that was either marginal or velamentous. It's higher in twin pregnancies, though, and we might not go in as much detail about twin pregnancies as people might want today because we're actually going to have a twin episode and we'll definitely follow it then. It's a variation of normal. It's still working. It's still functioning beautifully. Mm, There are some risk factors which we'll talk about. but And and there's risk factors with... Everything in life, yeah, that can still be considered normal. So, seven point eight percent of cords are not inserted centrally into the placenta; they're inserted elsewhere. And that's that number. That seven point eight percent is in singleton pregnancies. And if you have a twin pregnancy, sixteen point nine percent of twin pregnancies will experience either a velamentous. 6% of twin pregnancies will have velamentous and 10.9% will have marginal cord insertion. So as I said, all of that, the implications of that could be discussed in the twins episode, but we're going to kind of try and focus on singletons because that's where a lot of the research is at and easy to access. And we would definitely look at this particular topic in the twins episode. So I'm sorry if you've come to this with twinnies. You might still find a lot of info helpful, but we're not going to be very specific. So the two circumstances were associated with similar like reasons. I guess they found increased risk, in inverted commas, of having a marginal or velamentous cord insertion if you became pregnant through IVF. If, if there were twins, of course, advanced maternal age seemed to be a thing. Any illness in the woman, it says maternal chronic diseases was a factor. Female babies seem to have more, uh, statistically more, which is interesting because babies make, you know, their placentas. So the chronic conditions can be things like if you've got pre-existing diabetes or high blood pressure and illnesses like that. Yes. Interestingly, if you've had a previous pregnancy with marginal or velamentous insertion, you have higher risk of having it again. So 
there must mm. be a maternal factor. And the reason why we're talking about it is there is some differences in outcomes depending on if you have velamentous marginal insertion versus a central insertion. So those are the stats on how many people might experience it. So if you're a care provider, you're very, very likely to come across somebody who has a marginal of elementus cord insertion. If you're pregnant, I guess statistically there's a really good chance. Well, it's 6%, wasn't it? 7.8% for single two pregnancies, yeah. So that's seven out of every 100 people, so three and a half out of 50. Good, very good. I think that's as deep as we need to go into that rabbit hole. All right. And um, (laughs) I always do that with the numbers, don't I? I do love math. Can we break that down even further? No, we don't really need I could. I was like 1.75 out of 25 there. I'd already done it, so I feel like I need to let it out. It's like one in every 12, okay? Let's just go with that. One in every 12. Very good. Okay. Now, and again, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about this, but there is a paper on this in the shared resource folder. Velamentous vessels, so the vessels that traverse from the cord to the placenta are associated with another condition called vasa previa, where the vessels traverse, as I said, through the membranes, but can be visualized going across the cervix between each other. This is incredibly problematic and there is ultrasound screening for it. And we'll talk about all of that. But often when people talk about velamentous cord insertion in the research, it's paired with Vasa preview information as well. But we're not going to go deeply into that. We are actually going to have an episode on abnormal placentation or concerning or alternative placentation, whatever you want to call it. So we will talk about Vasa preview then, not today. Just but there is a paper in there if anybody came to this episode looking for that info. All right. Next question is can marginal and velamentous cord insertions be accurately diagnosed. Dun, dun, dun. Dun. So I found a study in 2020 and it stated that in 99 to 100% of unselected pregnancies, so if they just, anybody pregnant, come on in, have an ultrasound, in 99 to 100% of them, placental cord insertion site was accurate. Damn. Yeah. So they found they so they scanned 832 women and 99% of them accurately diagnosed the insertion point. Seven of them couldn't diagnose the insertion point, and all of those were noted to be posterior placentas. So you can see why that was a problem because yeah. it could have been yeah. there was a baby in the way. Yeah. In this group that they scanned, eight of them were suspected to be velamentous and seven proved to be true at birth. So there was only one that they suspected was velamentous and wasn't actually. So this research actually said with almost 100% accuracy, almost, they could tell you how your placenta cord is inserted. I guess that makes sense, right? Like it makes total sense because we, we're looking for that. We're looking for the blood flow. Mm-hmm. So you would see the point of entry. Yes, and and if you fancy, if you're a sonographer and you're listening to this, the research papers actually get detailed about the technique. Ah, so there's other techniques that aren't as accurate. 
Well, you need to do a color Doppler flow. Again, I'm not a sonographer, so I'm not clued in. But if you're a sonographer, the things that they recommended are completely possible on a regular scan. So they just said, basically, combine these two techniques, you'll almost 100% of the time be able to diagnose where the cord insertion is, unless, of course, there's some, the baby's obscuring it, like in these posterior placentas. So that's good news, I think. And the question... I wonder if that, that new technique, though, is why we're seeing it more and more and more, because the coloured Dopplers, I wonder if that was a... I don't think it's a new technique. No, but with new technology, right? Like it wouldn't have always been possible when we had black and white only. Well, then interestingly, when you say about that, in this other very big study, which I'm going to tell you about, which was done recently, 2023, that one cited some research. Yeah, 2023, this year. Yeah. That paper, so that paper, the paper that I'm about to tell you about, said that 91% of non-central cord insertions can be diagnosed by ultrasound. So I followed that reference because this, because I read it in a 2023 paper. I thought, oh, cool. When did they do that research that found that 91% of these insertions could be diagnosed? So it referred to a 1998 research paper. So I went back and I found that research paper and it was pretty rubbish research. I was like, why did they include that paper when this 2020 paper was way more recent and heaps more numbers? So the 1998 study, so like 25 years ago, they them they found a 91% success rate in their technique, but they only scanned um, 54 placentas. If you had an ultrasound in 1998, 91% of, of, of non-central cord insertions would have been discovered. So I think... So it's been accurate for a while. It's been, it's been pretty accurate. And so... I mean, why do we care about where the cord is inserted? That's the next question. Because everyone's like, okay, that's nice. We can find out where it's inserted, but why do we care? All right, let me tell you why we care. All right, and I'll tell you why we care from the research. So there was a massive study, like I said, by Ebbing et al. done with over, so I'm going to round up this number, but 635,500. 635,000, babe. 635,000. Right. So fortunately, and thank you to thank you to the authors who wrote the paper called Impact of Marginal Cord Insertion on Perinatal Outcomes, a Systematic Review and Analysis in 2023, because you made my job so much easier. I did not have to find the 15 papers that you found and, and analysed for our benefit. So why do we care where the cord is inserted? We care because some of your clinical care providers will see this diagnosis on your ultrasound and they may panic themselves or they may have some their own fears that they try and transfer upon you about the reason if this is concerning. So let's have a look at the research, what happens. So the, this paper called Impact of Marginal Cord Insertion on Perinatal Outcomes. So we're looking at marginal cord insertion here, not velamentous. This study aimed to evaluate the overall risk of marginal cord insertion to pregnancy. And this particular paper also said that the management is controversial. There's no universal kind of understanding of what we should do if 
you've got marginal cord insertion diagnosed. So know that this is very care provider dependent. So this, these authors, they included observational studies of singleton pregnancies only comparing marginal cord insertion with central cord insertion. They found 15 eligible studies. Seven of these studies included women who were diagnosed ahead of time with marginal cord insertion, and eight of the studies are where they just discovered marginal cord insertion after the fact where it wasn't seen in ultrasound. But only 11 of the studies included data where they could collate to create their stats. So the next stats that I'm going to tell you about are based on 11 studies. And that big study that I told you about was included in this in this systematic review. So you'll get information from that study in this study. All right. So this study overall, they did find that marginal cord insertion poses some higher risk for pregnancy regarding some outcomes but I'm going to break every single one down. And as we know in studies, they choose what they want to research and what they want to report on, and they don't necessarily report on everything else. So this study reported on small for gestational age babies, hypertensive disorders like pregnancy-induced hypertension and preeclampsia, placental abruption, stillbirth, preterm birth, operative vaginal birth, and cesarean section birth, and APGAR scores of less than seven. So they're the outcomes that they looked at. So let's have a look. And we've got, again, massive numbers here. So I feel like in terms of stats, this would be pretty accurate. And it's a combination of all different studies. And this research paper also did eliminate papers that had a high risk of bias. So they've only included what they consider to be good quality research. So let's have a look. Small for gestational age babies. Of 33,000 babies with marginal cord insertion, 10% of them were diagnosed as small for gestational age. And if you compare that to babies with central cord insertions, it was 8.1. So 10% with marginal cord insertion, 8.1 for central. So the difference is 1.9% with small for gestational age. So I want women to do with this information what they want and for care providers. I'm not going to suggest what management needs to happen as a result of these stats. This information is just for you to put in your head and go, does that feel high enough risk for me to accept or decline interventions or opportunities for management? And that's for women to decide. So then they had a look at hypertensive disorders. So pregnancy-induced hypertension with, I'm going to call it MCI, marginal cord insertion. Of 45,000 pregnancies, 5.1 of them were complicated with pregnancy-induced hypertension. Of over 700,000 pregnancies, 3.3 for central cord insertion. So there's, what's that, 1.2% difference in stats, but higher chance with marginal cord insertion. Similar stats for preeclampsia. 5.1% if you've got marginal cord insertion, 3.2 for central cord insertion. All right, placental abruption. So this is where the placenta actually comes away from the uterine wall. Marginal cord insertion, 0.06%. 0 
central cord insertion, 0.04%. So both very, very small. Stillbirth of 2,750 pregnancies, there were 13 stillbirths. That was 0.5, sorry, 0.05% with marginal cord insertion. So I'll say that again. 2,750 pregnancies, there were 13 stillbirths. In the other group, the central cord insertion, so if it's 0.05% for marginal cord insertion, it's 0.03% for central cord insertion. So if you had centrally inserted cord of 38,500 pregnancies, 101 ended in stillbirth. Operative vaginal birth. So this includes vacuum and forceps. You've got a less chance of vacuum or forceps if you have marginal cord insertion. I don't think that's intentional, but 8.5% with marginal cord insertion, 8.6% with central. Caesarean section, interestingly, not that big a difference, except in emergency caesarean sections, there was an increase. But overall, the cesarean section rate was 19% if you had marginal cord insertion versus 15.5% with central. So there is some difference. APGAR scores. So APGAR scores are something that we use as midwives to kind of visually explain the health of the baby after it's born. So we check five different things and we give them a score. A well-healthy baby will usually get a score of 9 out of 10 at one minute, nine out of 10 at five minutes. That's still considered good APGARs. Anything less than seven, we suggest requires some kind of action. Um, If you've got marginal cord insertion, 4.5% of babies had an APGAR less than seven versus 3.6 in the central cord insertion group. And at five minutes, and this is the more important number, the five-minute APGAR less than seven, there was no difference. So for some reason, they might be born in slightly poorer condition than babies with centrally co- central cord insertions, but by five minutes, they're on par. So there was 1.7% in the marginal cord insertion group and 1.6% in the central cord insertion group at five minutes for APGARS less than seven. So they bounce back pretty well. And NICU admissions or special care nursery admissions, of babies who have marginal cord insertion end up having a stay in NICU versus 8% of central cord insertion babies. Those are the stats from the very biggest, most recent analysis of marginal cord insertion risks. And I wasn't expecting you to do that. What were you expecting? Well, because the biggest thing that people come to me about is how the third stage is going to be managed. Yeah, well, let's talk. I want to talk to you about that that's, too. Yeah, but that's, so that's interesting. And then there are questions about interventions during the birth. If you have a velamentous cord insertion, then, and all vasa previa, firstly, if you have vasa previa, it's, it's possible that depending on where the vessels are, that you'll be recommended a cesarean section. But if you're having a vaginal birth, then things like artificial rupture of membranes with the amni hook that midwives use, having 
vasa previa or velamentous cord insertion would be a massive red flag to having your waters broken because you can accidentally nick those vessels with with that hook and some velamentous cord insertions are not diagnosed and there are vessels running through the membranes that we don't know of and if you follow me on social media you'll see media you'll see a few weeks ago I put up a picture of velamentous placenta and there was a big chat there about velamentous cord insertion and so that's the first thing is that With these cord insertions, different cord insertions, I think there's extra caution around artificial rupture membranes just because it uses a tool to nick something and make a hole in something. And you don't want that something to be the vessel that runs from the cord to the placenta because that's the baby's blood. That's not the woman's blood. So if that gets nicked or there's a hole or something in that, then if you bleed, you're bleeding baby's blood, not mother's blood. So that's even more dramatic because they don't have a lot of it. And then we think about once the baby's out, how you, if getting the placenta out with controlled cord traction. And again, there's two, there's multiple techniques for getting a placenta out, active or physiological. And you can have a look. We've done a whole episode on that about placental birth. Of course, if you know that there's marginal cord insertion or velamentous cord insertion, it would make a lot of sense not to do active management because that relies on pulling and putting traction on the cord. And if the cord's inserted in the membranes, which are not that strong, not as strong as the placenta, then you could well and truly detach the cord from the placenta. And then you've got a problem where the placenta's still up inside the woman and you've given her an oxytocic, which relies on you to do controlled contraction. So was there evidence around this? Because this is what people are being informed. I have marginal cord insertion, so they've told me I'll need active management, which just makes my mind, like, crumble because it's just like why why has no one stopped to think that that's actually the worst thing you can do? I agree. I think it's the absolute worst thing you can do. There's no research on it because we've still decided that the very, well, the world, the research is, is mm, still so in favour of active management. So you need to, if you haven't listened to our um, episode on how you can give birth to your placenta, you need to go and listen to that and the evidence around physiological versus active management. And this is where it gets tricky because I think Mel and I are both pretty much on the same page with this, that physiological management of your placenta, which is where you give birth to it on your own, won't be as safe with a care provider that doesn't know what to do in a setting that doesn't support it. And so, which is going to be more often than not the settings that are picking this up and telling you that you need active management. And that's where it's going to be really tricky for people. But just like you think about it, if you've got a core that is less able to be pulled on, then why the hell are we pulling on it? I think <laughs> this is why I want to do an episode on it because it just, yeah. And I, yeah. So if we do active management, which relies on cord traction on a marginal so that pulling, pulling on the cord, which relies on, yeah, cold contraction of the cord on a percent on a cord that is poorly inserted in terms of strength because the membranes are easy to tear off, like easy to tear. It's, well, this yeah, more able to be snapped really, and then more intervention. Yeah, well, clinically, if I had a client who was diagnosed with marginal or velamentous cord insertion 
then my education would be we need to do absolutely everything we possibly can to facilitate a physiological placental birth. Because if we're at physiological labor and birth, because you don't want to be having to do anything through the cervix, like artificial rupture of membranes. Right. And all of that's connected. So Mm. a physiological placental birth relies on an ideal physiological baby birth. So, yeah. So if we facilitate all of that background stuff, you know, low lighting, calm environment, physiological birth of the baby, no separation of the woman from the baby and really focus on physiological placental birth. And that for me would be a safer placental birth for, for a woman who has marginal cord dissociation or velamentous at home. Obviously, if you're in hospital, the hospital's just thinking, oh, well, if the cord comes off, we'll just take her to theatres for manual removal of the placenta, right? Like it might not be a very big deal to the place that you're going to, but it's a very big deal to a woman whose cords come off the placenta because the only way out that a lot of hospitals or clinicians can see is, oh, no, if there's no handle on the placenta for me to pull it out, how's it going to get out? They don't anticipate or understand that the placent- that the body could birth the placenta even if the cords come off it. So if you happen to be the victim of a, a cord that's come off your placenta because you've got marginal cord insertion and someone's tried to do active management, consider the possibility that you could still physiologically birth the rest of the placenta yeah, you could still give birth to your placenta physiologically, even if you've had the Sinto injection. If you get upright, sit on the toilet, do a deep squat, create some kind of downward pressure, bite with gravity, not not anywhere else, then you could possibly birth that placenta. But I don't know, I think it's a recipe for disaster trying to recommend active management for central or velamental cord insertions. It doesn't make sense to me either. So marginal or velamentous, you mean? You said central, but you mean marginal. I mean marginal or velamentous. Um, Because the other thing that people may not be understanding if they haven't given birth yet or they have given birth and the placental birth was fine last time is that if a placenta is stuck inside you and you're taken to theatre, that means that you are separated from your baby and your partner. So babies don't go with you for skin to skin and that whole procedure can be a good couple of hours and if any complications arise, it can be more. And so what that means is the first hours of your newborn baby's life away from you. And so this is why it's actually a big deal. Well, so B, so actually I have some research about this. Now that we've already single-handedly solved the world's placental problems, I can let you know the research I found and I think you're going to like it. Well, maybe. Anyway, that's my theory is that you're going to like it. I'm hoping I'm just impressed that I've managed to find a study so like pat on the back for that and pat on the back for that yeah so it's actually the same you know I earlier in the podcast talked about this Ebbing et al study that had 635,000 people in it these are the same authors the same study population so the Norwegian study and now they've just looked at a different part of the data. And so this paper, the title is Third Stage of Labor Risks in Velamentous and Marginal Cord Insertion, and it's a population-based study. So basically they had this big database of people who had their babies and they used that database to draw the information from. 
So they're trying to answer the question, do people who have velamentous or marginal cord insertions have a higher risk of bleeding? And I highly suspect that this paper is the reason why, you know, you were saying you hear a lot of women talking about how their care providers tell them that if they've got these cord insertions, they must have actively managed third stage. Hmm. I would suspect that this paper is the reason why they're suggesting that. So if if our practice is to do all actively managed placental birth, then of course that is what you're going to encourage people towards, especially in light of this research. So I'll talk to you, talk you through it. So the the idea of this research was to see if these cord insertions were associated with complications in the third stage. So again, it was that big population study and they wanted to check if there was an increase in post or a change in postpartum hemorrhage, a change in the rates of manual placental removal and what we call curatage. So where they kind of clean up the the site where the placenta was removed. So those are the measures that they were looking at and they concluded that marginal, especially velamentous cord insertion is a marginal and especially velamentous is associated with an increased risk of hemorrhage an increased risk for the need of manual removal and curatage. So, but I want to break all of that down because, you know, everyone's like, oh no, they read the first bit and they go, well, that's it. All of these women are going to have higher risk of bleeding and the placenta getting stuck and everything. So before we go on, manual removal of the placenta is where they actually need to usually take you off to the operating theater and literally extract your placenta from you, usually usually with a hand where they kind of try and shear it off the edge of the uterus and remove it literally manually. So, and we spoke about that earlier too, with just the complication of needing to be taken through to theatres and what that does to interrupting that postpartum experience with your baby. So let's have a look in detail at the study. So as we learned already in this same paper, they told us that velamentous cord insertions occur in 1.5% of pregnancies and marginal cord insertions in 6.3% of pregnancies. So what I want to just highlight here is that this paper made no reference, and this is the unfortunate part, they made no reference of if the women had active management of the placenta or physiological management of the placenta. And if you heard our placental birth episode, you'll know that having physiological versus active management actually has a direct impact on how much blood you're going to lose. It's just so disappointing that it's not even mentioned, right? Because that we have research on the outcomes of these two procedures. They're very different procedures and they do have different outcomes associated with them. So physiological versus active. So to not think that that is going to have some kind of cause and effect relationship Mm. is really neglectful of the research, like to not even state what they've had. Like it's just not okay. I know, and I read it word for word hoping that maybe somewhere they'd they'd at least acknowledge that. What about in the last one, in the one that it was stemmed from? No, there was no mention. Nothing. The last one didn't even mention placental birth full stop or PPH or anything like that. 
So this one is specific to postpartum hemorrhage and third stage outcomes. So I have that data, like it's there, that would be recorded. So we have to, I mean, we're going to have to assume here if it's in a hospital, then it's actively managed, right? Well, we we have to assume it's a it's a massive database. So I imagine there was lots of different locations that were feeding into it. And surely there's a tick box that said this woman had active management versus physiological management, whether or not they put that in there. They did make one mention of active management of the placenta, and they said that they removed cesarean section birth from the analysis numbers. So this is all just PPH and retained placenta and curatage from vaginal births. They removed cesarean sections because placental birth is always actively managed in a cesarean section. So they removed it, but there's no mention of, I mean, I can't imagine that over half a million births here have been physiologically managed. In Norway. If any Norwegian midwives want to email us and let us know, but yeah. I mean, that's this is the really tricky bit, right? Because you and I theoretically believe that pulling on the cord, which in my mind makes sense that it's going to happen more in velamentous, right? Because yes. you've got a weaker cord. So pure physics here, pure physics. The less that cord is rooted into the placenta, the less force it is able to withstand, the more it's going to separate, right? So automatically that makes my brain think that cord has been pulled on. Right. So so we already can predict what the findings are going to be here. So right? just so cranky. <laughs> just so cranky about it. But like, you me- need to email them now and you need to tell them that they need to update their study. And, and how can what- you comment on PPH and retain placenta? if you're not commenting on how the placenta is actually being born. I mean, preach. It's exactly, exactly what I was thinking. It's been a big day. (laughs) It's been a big day. And I'm looking at the tables and I'm scrolling through the method thinking surely at some point they're going to say, you know, 98% of these women had actively managed placental birth. But there's just no mention. So, And I will say there's no mention in Australian Mothers and Babies Report either. Like it's not actually something... That in the um, Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, the Mothers and Babies Report that comes out every year, it's not actually stated what mm. management is, which just, it just goes to show that we believe everyone has active management. Yeah. And right, Mel, tell us the stats. I'll tell you the stats. Okay. So as suspected, so manual removal of the placenta in this study, the overall rate was 1.6%. Velamentous cord insertion, if you had a velamentous cord insertion, 5.5% of those women needed to have manual removal of the placenta, which was much higher than marginal cord insertion, which was 2.4%. So, duh, like, like you said, of course, velamentous cord insertions are going to have a higher rate of evulsion. By the way, and this was the other thing they didn't mention, they did not tell us the rates of cord evulsion where the cord actually came off the placenta. They only told us the rates of manual removal, which I can only assume because the cords come off the placenta and they've got no other way of getting it out. But they didn't mention whether or not the manual removal was because they tried to get the placenta out and it wouldn't come and the cord was attached or they tried to get the placenta out and the cord detached, and that's why they had to go in for the manual removal of the placenta. 
I just have to go and feel my feelings. Who? You take over. Okay. So this, this, I mean, there's big holes considering, okay, we'll put in a phone call and I want to hear from these authors. If you're out there ebbing from Norway, please reach out at Melanie the Midwife on Instagram. Google me, you'll find my email, please. All right. So that's manual removal. So absolutely, yes. If you're looking at these stats and you have marginal cord insertion, you've got nearly twice the chance of manual of needing a manual removal and nearly like three or four times the chance of needing manual removal if it's a velamentous cord insertion, assuming you've had active management and assuming that's because the cord actually came off, which is what I'm suspecting. But that's not the conclusion that the authors came to. The authors started to theorize. So they theorized that they said our results suggest that abnormal anchoring or vascular development of these placentas may result in delayed placental detachment and excessive bleeding, which is associated with prolongation of the third stage of labor. And so what they're saying is, is actually maybe these cord insertions have created a difference in how the placenta anchors to the uterus and that's why there's an increased risk of these things, including needing manual removal, because that's the other reason why you might have a manual removal. If your placenta takes a long time to detach, then the mainstream maternity systems have a low tolerance for a lengthy third stage. So here in Australia, if it's longer than an hour, they consider that you need manual removal in theatres. If you're going for... Oh, if you're going for physiological, they give one hour before they move to active management. And if you're having active management and you've had an hour, then yes, they will recommend manual removal. Correct. Yeah. So that's the that's the kind of the low tolerance for a delayed, regardless of bleeding or the mother's well-being states. So that's kind of the two main reasons why you'd manu- manually remove. There's been a delay in the third stage of the placental birth. Or if the cords come off and you simply can't retrieve it with active management. So that's manual removal. So, yep, I mean, as we suspected, duh. So PPH now, so they've divided it into postpartum hemorrhage of greater than 500 mils or postpartum hemorrhage of more than 1,500 mils. So the over 1,500 mils is a more severe postpartum hemorrhage. And obviously over 500 mils is considered mild to moderate and a level of blood loss. So, I mean, their PPH rates were very high in this, even in the in the, the usual population. So overall, in the whole study, 15.2% of women experienced blood loss between 500 and 1,500 mils, which I think is really high. I haven't worked in the system enough. Oh, my gosh. I just was that's like, yeah, yeah, that's. I worked in places where it was much higher than that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I do physiological management at home. So to think that 15% of my clients most definitely do not have a PPH, I go to work thinking that everyone's probably going to be just fine most of the time. Anyway, so then if you look at velamentous cord insertion, 22.2% experience blood loss between 5 and 1.5, like 500 mils and 1,500 mils. And then marginal cord insertion was 17.2. So again, all of them were increased and the most increase was seen in velamentous. And and I'm guessing that this concern over postpartum hemorrhage, again, as I said earlier, is why 
clinicians would look at this paper and go, well, this is a great reason to do active management of the third stage without yeah, thinking because, of the anatomy. Well, because what they're doing is they're blaming the anatomy. They're saying the anatomy is inadequate and that's why they're bleeding, right? So the cause turns on to the woman and her body as opposed to what we could possibly be doing to the situation, which beautifully describes their philosophy is that we're broken and it needs to be managed. And so what happens is they get told already that they're abnormal because of where their cords inserted. Then they get told they're going to have a PPH. Then they get told that their body's incapable and they need to have active management. Then they bleed and we prove the story. See, your body couldn't do it. It's It needed this and now it's bled. Mm. Actually, like it's just that constant fear. We never go, hey, what are we doing here? What, yeah. what are we causing? And I really like, so I guess, again, this is up to you, what you think, what you believe, what lands for you. If you're not, if you don't believe what we're saying and you think, no, B, it's because the placenta is not implanted right and that's going to cause issues, then great. Go for the active management habit. What lands for you? What feels right for you? And if that doesn't feel right, if you think, no, I want to, if I've had a physiological labor, I want to physiologically birth my placenta. I don't want people pulling on it if it's not attached as well. I want a chance to birth it. And if I bleed, then manage that when I bleed. Mm. Right. But I think I look at that evidence, you and me, it's so interesting, right? That you and I would come up with a completely different theory to what they have. And it is based on our experience. And we are experienced in physiological birth, whereas people that work in a medical model won't be as much. And so it may not even come into their mind, but you and I are so programmed to go back to physiology and true physiology knowledge tells us that that body is capable of birthing a placenta just like it's capable of birthing a baby because if it wasn't, we all would have bled out and died. Correct. If we couldn't birth our placentas, we wouldn't be here. Well, and you think about the the physiology of it and for the full explanation, go back to our placental birth episode, but if you're physiologically birthing a placenta, it's being pushed off the uterine wall and pushed out Whereas if you're going to have an active management, it's been pulled out. But we already know with these insertions, the weak point is the attachment of the core to the placenta. So like, yeah, to us, that does not compute. So it's really unfortunate that not even, it wasn't even mentioned as a limitation in this study. Yeah. And I would have loved to have seen the core devulsion research. Yeah, and I would have yeah, I would have loved to have known what's in it. Maybe we should contact the authors and see. I reckon we should. Yeah. yeah. They're often pretty, you know, receptive to that. They love having their research talked about and probably not in the way we've talked about. <laughs> Don't listen to our podcasts. They love being offered a lot of criticism from people. Yeah. So then they had a look at PPH over 1.5 liters. And again, there was an increase, not for, interestingly, not for marginal insertion. So 1.3% in the overall population, also 1.3% in marginal cord insertion, but 2.4% of women who had velamentous cord insertion had had a severe postpartum hemorrhage. So again, that's high. And then they looked at... So that was, we talked about manual removal, postpartum curatage, which is where they actually have to, I don't want to say scrape down the uterus, but if there's any. Separate it. Separate, yeah. Yeah, where there's any parts of the placenta still clinging to the side of the uterus after the placenta has been removed, the process of getting that off is a curatage. So 
that increased if you had a velamentous cord insertion, which I think maybe is what has fed their theory about there being abnormal placentation or attachment of the placenta as a as a pathological process as to why this is happening with these cord insertions. So that's what we know. And and I feel like for clinicians who have only just sort of skim read this paper, they would very quickly move to an assumption that they would need to actively manage placental birth for people who have marginal and velamentous cord insertions because they've been told that there's a five-fold increase for manual removal and postpartum curatage and excessive blood loss, but they haven't really broken down the stats and kind of the the method of how it was of how the placenta was tried to be brought out and whether or not active management played a part in it and cord avulsion wasn't mentioned, which was very annoying. Yeah, we almost need a little bit more research in this area to really come up with a proper theory around it. So we've given our theory, the researchers have given theirs. Find what lands with you and talk with your care provider. Look at the evidence if you want to go deeper and make a decision that's right for you and find a team that will support that if that's possible. There's a whole bunch of research in the resource folder. So if you are yet to access the resource folders for this podcast, go to melaniethemidwife.com, sign up to the podcast mailing list, and you will get immediate access to the resource folders. So For heaps more information on velamentous cord insertion and and marginal cord insertion, you can find some papers in there. I don't have a whole lot more to offer. Yeah, I just think take the information we have used today and whatever you're being offered by your care provider, sit with it and go, is this right for me? Am I happy to have the interventions that are being offered. And I just want to say, you may have no interventions offered. And so you might be coming to this going, why isn't my care provider offering me anything? You know, and and so you've come to this to be like, they should be offering more. So think about why, what are you concerned about? And then obviously, yeah, it works either way. Whatever is feels safe for you and your family, having those discussions with your care provider. But yeah, I really did want to cover the placental birth because it makes absolutely no sense to me in terms of physiology that we would pull on a cord that can handle less tension we would really want to support physiological so yeah you may have come to this wanting more interventions or you may be coming to this with less so hopefully you've got enough information there yeah and I think where this information might also be helpful is if you've been diagnosed with this kind of cord insertion and your care provider's gone whoa you've got a massive risk of having a small baby and you've got a massive risk of preterm birth and whatever other risks they say you might find comfort in the stats that I just shared that, you know, potentially your care providers overstated or understated the risks. So the idea of today's episode was to give you some pretty hard stats on what we found up to date about, you know, if there's an increased risk with these cord insertions and how much increased risk there is. And then it's always up to you to decide what you want to do with that information, because that's not up to your care provider to say, you know, you've got an increased risk of having a small baby. Therefore, you need to have an induction or you need to have repeat ultrasounds. That's all up to you is if you think the increased risk is increased enough to warrant extra of everything. Knowing that those extra things all come with increased risk themselves of more intervention. (laughs) It's a really tricky one. Well, I think we have to remember that a lot of the maternal, like a lot of maternity care 
favors and assumes that active management is the gold standard, whereas mm. research doesn't necessarily correlate with that. And again, have a look at our placental birth episode to get all the information on that. So I think that already our assumptions about placental birth and the safety of physiological placental birth cloud where we think the research should be. Anyway, that is that episode done and dusted. Now we are going to have a little resty poo. We are. A big resty poo. We're going to have a a mid-year recharge. You should be so proud of us listeners because both B and I are having extended holiday time with our families. So I'm having a holiday. B's having a holiday. We're going to really unplug from technology and working and all that stuff. So this will be our last episode for now. For Don't be scared. I think, oh, my gosh, that just evoked feelings in me. It yeah. won't be our last episode oh. forever. It'll be our, we're just going to have a four-week break, just four weeks, okay? Now, there's, there's some of you who look forward to Monday mornings with Mel and B because you all listen to us. Can I share a stat with you, B? Mm, so, always. Okay, cool. So I release the podcast at 3 a.m. on a Monday morning. So that's automated. Where automatically at 3 a.m., the Monday episode is released. I get up to, and then about 9.30, I get up to check emails and sort of I like to check check podcast stats on a Monday morning. And by the time I check my computer by 9.30, there's already been about 700 people who listened to the podcast episode that got released at 3 a.m. And in fact, I was up one morning at 5.30 a.m. Just It was it just so happened to be. And I thought, just get up and do a bit of work because you're not going back to sleep. And one episode had had 500 downloads by 5.30 a.m. And I thought... And they're all our loyal night shift workers driving home or trying to stay awake in those horrible hours between 3 and 5 p.m. on night shift. Yeah. So anyway, that was interesting. But what what I wanted to offer, I wanted to offer our um, very dedicated Monday morning listeners who are going to have a big hole in their morning, let's be honest. She wants to offer you to all come on holidays with her. (laughs) Just... I, I want to offer apologies for, for ruining your Monday morning by not being there. I just, and I hope you can get through this next four weeks. And our next episode will be landing on the 17th of July. So it's only like, what's the date today? So it's it's the 12th. It's currently the 12th of June. Oh, it's my brother's birthday. Happy birthday, bro. Happy birthday, bro. <laughs> Happy birthday, bro. Okay. So it's currently the 12th of June. We will be back on the 17th of July. So do not fear. In the meantime, if you're on the mailing list for this podcast, you will, all the Assembly of Rebellious Midwives, you will in that in this next four weeks also be getting emails because the Assembly of Rebellious Midwives is opening shortly, which is the other thing I'm going to do in this four-week break is get that solid and ready for you guys. So me and B are off for a nice, well-deserved rest to connect in with our families and recover. And we will be back with you on the 17th of July with more episodes of The Great Birth Rebellion. You see you then. Happy winter. Yeah. Happy <laughs> birthday to you. Happy, Happy winter. Happy winter. Happy winter. Winter to you. To you. Happy winter, freezing your toes off down there. Oh, can I also say, actually, oh, my gosh, it's my birthday tomorrow. What? 13th of June. June. Oh, 
I yeah. can't do future stuff. Happy oh. birthday for tomorrow, Mel. Thank you. It's my oh. birthday. If you're listening to this episode, please feel free to send me a DM through Instagram or Facebook and wish me a happy birthday. <laughs> Bee's laughing. I like being wished happy birthday. You like being what? loved. I love being loved. I am loved. Mm. I'm so loved. I expect love. And it's my birthday. I'll be turning 39. Melanie, it's your birthday. Happy birthday, Melanie. Mm. We're all going now. Now, Have we got a holiday song? Um, No, all I can think of that holiday song is where the we're all going on a summer holiday. No. Soon it'll be my birthday. See you all again in four weeks. <laughs> Bye. That got weird. <laughs> Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melanithemidwife.com and find out more about me, Bee, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! Um, (laughs) All right.